0: Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Jenna Lyons, to our show today. Jenna is a fashion icon and co-founder and CEO of the direct-to-consumer beauty brand, Love Seed. After graduating from Parsons School of Design, Jenna started her career with an internship at Donna Karen. She then joined J. Crew as one of the first members of the design team under founder Emily Woods. Jenna was foundational in the company's growth and eventually became the executive creative director and then president of the multi-billion dollar organization. Jenna spent most of her career at J.Crew and is widely recognized as a creative force behind the American retail chain's phenomenal rise from floundering catalog chain to one of the most coveted fashion brands in the U.S. Jenna became a cult figure and women all over the world were mesmerized by her accessible yet highly curated look. A style icon in her own right, Jenna is regularly featured in magazines such as Vanity Fair, Glamour, and the New York Times. Jenna was also featured in Time Magazine's list of 100 Most Influential People and was dubbed as the Woman Who Dresses America. After 27 years at J Crew, Jenna was finally ready to start her own empire. She launched her company, Love Scene, a direct-to-consumer beauty brand that is reinventing fake lashes, which is largely inspired by her own genetic conditions that impact her lash growth. And she was most recently the executive director and main star of her own reality competition show, Stylish with Jenna Lyons on HBO Max, which I absolutely loved. Welcome to the show, Jenna. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I was telling you about this a bit before the interview, but you have been someone I've been following over the years. And when I watched your documentary or reality show slash documentary <laughs> on HBO, I'm like, I love Jenna. She's so honest oh. and vulnerable. I need mm-hmm. to have her on the podcast. So I know our <laughs> listeners are going to fall more in love with you today. So again, thank you for joining us. I'm
1: honored and thank you for watching the show. I think you and like four other people watched it. That's great. <laughs>
0: It's the best. No, me and my mom love it. And everyone <laughs> listening, you got to watch it. So I'm excited. So I want to jump right in because there's so much in your career to talk about. And I know you were born in Boston, moved to California when you were four in a beautiful town called Palos Verdes. And I know your parents actually got divorced when you were quite young and you were mostly raised by your mother. And she actually mentioned to you once, you know, make your, or a few times, make your own money and not rely on anyone else. And I want to first talk about this because my parents are also divorced. And I heard that a lot, like be financially independent, don't rely on anybody. So I'm curious, you know, how was your childhood? And how did your mom's perspective around money influence the woman you are today?
1: I mean, listen, I, it's so funny because I, <laughs> You, me, and my therapist could talk about this. <laughs> you know, I think that, listen, I appreciate I appreciate it. I think it, what it did was it made me very scared. It made me very afraid that if I didn't take care of myself, no one would. And so I think in retrospect, while I know that it made me work hard because I was so afraid to be beholden or need someone else to take care of me, it also, you know, on the flip side, made it harder for me to trust and to let go. And so I think, you know, both things are true. I think, you know, as you start to get older and you start to really look back on things like while I'm Deeply appreciative of a lot of it, I also realized that there's there's two sides to every coin, and it had a it had a lot of positive impacts on me, and also probably some that I, I'm just, I'm just peeling back that onion as I seem to do every time. I yes, therapy. Do you want to come to my therapy session?
0: Yeah, no, I'm down. There's a lot of things that uh, yeah, I'm learning on, like relying on someone, and I mean, I stayed in a job for money for the longest time. So as you mentioned, like as we get older, at least we're more aware of our habits and childhood yeah. and upbringing. So it's interesting to peel back that onion. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think I will say there is a certain amount of internal calm and internal sort of, when you know that you can take care of yourself, it does reduce a different kind of fear. So Mm -hmm. the fear or the inability to sort of trust, but did give me release from a different kind of fear, which was, is anyone going to take care of me? Am I going to find someone to do it? It's like, well, I don't need someone to take care of me. I need someone to love and to be a partner with. I don't need them to like take care of me in that way. And, and so I think I feel grateful for that. And I, like I loved working, so it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but there was definitely a motivator.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll, we'll dive deeper into that in a little bit later. And also, you know, one thing you've been very open about is traditionally growing up, you weren't quote unquote beautiful, or that's what you thought. And you had a pretty tough childhood. And it's funny to think about that now because, you know, people are trying to emulate you and dress like you. So it's shocking to hear, but can you take us back to those difficult moments of childhood and how you think it really inspired your creativity and fashion at the
1: time? I mean, I think the most sort of poignant moment was, you know, having grown up in this situation where I did not feel attractive and was teased quite a bit. And a kid named Remy used to run after me and beat me up after school. I think I was really shocked when I started to make clothes that the whole conversation around my image or what I was wearing or how I looked shifted dramatically. And the power of something like that is so overwhelming. I mean, it was the first time I'd had positive feedback around something that I had not only worn, but I actually made it myself. And I think those two things really shifted my perspective. Because when you're young, I mean, I was in seventh grade, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was scared. And I didn't understand what the path was like, there was no internet. So it wasn't, there were jobs were just like jobs that everybody knew, you know, I'm going to be a nurse, I'm going to be a teacher, I'm gonna be a doctor. And I didn't know. And I was, I was so grateful to find this passion for making clothes, but I never in a million years never in a million years would I would have thought that I would have gotten to a place in my career where people like actually wanted to take a picture with me or like liked my outfit, like just never in a million years. Like it's just the weirdest twist of fate, but it's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. I love it. And I'd love for you to also share this one story where I think, you know, in middle school, you were six feet tall. And like you mentioned, you couldn't find certain clothes that fit. And because of a, a genetic disorder that you have, you needed to cover up your legs. So I'd love to hear about that one. I think it was like a bright yellow skirt with yeah, watermelons. Sure. Like, tell us more sure. about that because it's such a defining sure. moment for you. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think, so I had a genetic disorder. The genetic disorder left me with conicular teeth, which is basically, they look like cones, which is really very great for us, a 13-year-old girl. And I had huge bald spots in the back of my head and I have scars on my legs and arms and pretty much all over the place. But they don't, you can't really tell what they are. They just look like my skin is multicolored and you know, people are just cruel. And I remember, you know, I took a home economics class, which is basically, it doesn't exist anymore, but it's where you learn how to balance a checkbook. You learn how to bake and you learn how to sew. And I learned how to sew. The first thing I made was this, I went to the fabric store and I made this bias cut watermelon skirt. It had, it was bright yellow base with pink watermelons on it. And um. I actually did a story for Lena Dunham when she first launched her newsletter about this watermelon skirt. And I did a little painting of it for her and she framed it for me, which was so sweet. That was the skirt that I wore to school the next day. And I thought it was a big girl because none of the clothes fit me. So I was shopping in the section for bigger girls because I didn't, nothing fit me and nothing was long enough. So I was wearing like bigger clothes that would hang down to get them to be long. And I was just so confused. And I didn't realize that I was actually kind of tall and thin. But I'm just so, it was just such a weird, distorted time in my life. I wore this skirt and Darlene Patterson in social studies class sent me a note. and was like, hey, I love your skirt. And I was like, wow, Darlene's like the most popular girl in school, never even looked my way. And I said, oh, I made it. And she was like, well, you make me one. And it was just like, it was kind of earth shattering because I didn't, I never had anybody want anything I had. <laughs> you know, I was that kid who was the outcast and like truly the last person picked on the team, like no joke. And so to have that experience, I, it was incredibly transformative. And like, it gave me hope that I had, there's something I got there I could do, which is, I mean, again, I'm never in my wildest dreams, but yeah, it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. And it's pretty amazing just hearing about, you know, that middle school experience, because that led you to get into sewing and buy the Vogue magazine. So it's beautiful how that really changed the trajectory of your life that was to come. And, you know, I know you moved to New York in the eighties, you ended up going to Parsons School of Design and New York at that time, right. Was very different.
1: Like yes. you joke, very, like the meatpacking district was like legitimately the meatpacking district. Meat district was legitimately the meatpacking district. And back then, like New York was, it was the wild, wild west. I mean, it was all night dance clubs. It was, this was like, not that far from the Studio 54 days. We were out all night. It cra- you know, I used to go to drag shows, underground clubs and watch. I mean, this whole thing, pose. It's like, I, I witnessed all of that firsthand in 1987. Incredible dancing and runway shows and you know they're just it was just really inspiring and so fun in a world I had never seen before I mean I moved from a tiny little town in California at 17 to like full on drinking from the fire hose of like attitude and craziness and fashion and extravagance absolutely kind of it was just explosive it was really an incredible time in my life and I'm I'm so grateful that I I didn't know because I didn't there's no internet. So I didn't, I didn't know what I was walking into and no one else did. And so it was also oh very God. private because there were no phones. You could really let loose. I mean, going to see some of those, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Paris is Burning, which is really the precursor to Pose. That was what it was like. I mean, it was really that sort of gritty and honest and, and raw, which was amazing.
0: And I know you've also talked about like, it was the first time you very, you very much felt beautiful in your skin because the definition of beauty was just so different than the beach town you grew up in. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think good research. You know, I grew up in a town in Palos Verdes where it to be pretty, there was a standard and that was blonde hair, which I had dyed my hair blonde, very tan, which I was very tan, big boobs, which I did not have and <laughs> looked great in a bathing suit, which I kind of didn't. So I kind of, I was doing everything I could to fit in, but I was just never meeting the mark. And when I remember really distinctly, my friend John Dunn took me out one night and he's You know, I had a tiny little black dress, like super simple. No back in LA, I would have worn something so I can't God only knows what I would have worn. I probably would have looked like Stevie Nicks. And here in New York, everything was sort of a little bit more streamlined and just simple black heels. And I remember very distinctly walking across Houston Street at Broadway, which is so funny because I live there now. And some guy was like completely taken by walking, watching me walk up the street and like hit the literally drove right into a street sign. You're kidding. (laughs) Like no joke. It was the best. I mean, it was amazing. That was the first time I'd ever felt. I don't know if I felt beautiful. It took a while for me to actually be comfortable in my skin, but I definitely realized that like, there were all kinds of appreciation for all different kinds of beauty. I mean, discovering Antonio Lopez, the artist was also a big turning point for me because when I discovered him, he had a a group of women around him, like Jerry Hall, Tina Chow, Grace Jones. They were all so different and they didn't fit into the mold of what I understood as beauty. They were wild. They were unabashedly like unapologetic about their looks. They were over the top. They all different skin tones, different ways of dressing, different levels of drama, you know, Marissa Barron's and then, you know, Jerry Hall with like a huge glossy lips. It was just, you know, that was really (laughs) That was just a huge change point.
0: Yeah. What an incredible time to be in New York and what an inspiration for you as like a young woman really coming into yourself. And I know at the time when you were in school, you were interning with Donna Karen and you eventually ended up applying to J. Crew, where you ended up staying, you know, which we'll get into. But I'd love to hear, you know, what was your motivation around applying there, and not staying with Donna Karen? Cause she was clearly very well known at the time.
1: It was amazing. It was an incredible experience. It was just I, you know, I didn't come from money, and you know, the reason I was able to go to Parsons—it was an incredibly expensive school—because I was in a car accident and I got a settlement from the car (laughs) accident. Or I never would have been able to go. So I was working at Donna Karen. The clothes were beautiful, but back then, this is in the, this is 1990. A jacket back then was twenty two hundred dollars. That's that was an exorbitant amount of money in that time, and for me, and I, I couldn't afford to wear any of the clothes, and no, and no one else in my family, none of my friends could either. And so while it was really aspirational and the quality was insane and I loved the clothes and I loved being there, I I couldn't wear any of it. And I didn't feel like I was, you know, people were like, wow, you're working at Tonic and They're impressed, but they didn't have any connection to it. They just, it was felt very sort of on a pedestal. And I also found myself in a place where it was a small brand and they didn't have a lot of money to pay me. So like, I couldn't afford. To, I couldn't afford to do the job. You know, it was just not possible. So I ended up going home and working as a waitress for the entire summer. Before I left to go be a waitress, I checked the job board at Parsons, and there was a sign saying, "J. Crew Assistant Designer in Men's Knits." And I'm like, I never made a knit in my life. I never done men's. I was like, but I loved J. Crew. It was like in the early days where they were really kind of changing game. They were a catalog company who was shooting Christy Turlington and Linda Evangelista. And it was really, really game changing. And I was like, okay, there's something going on there. So I put my resume in and went for an interview with Marcy Chelson. I remember her, she was the head of human resources. And then I didn't hear from them until the end of the summer. And then the end of the summer, thank God, because my mother was literally about to get me out of the house. Oh, I mean, she was like, wait, you went to Parsons, I went to college and you're waitressing. I'm like, I know. I got a call and yeah, I took the job ironically, but I mean, I'm shortening the story, but I took the job without asking what the salary was, which is kind of hysterical.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I wouldn't do that that now. Yeah, Nope. Nope. I really wouldn't. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, you're probably excited, and I know even like at that time you didn't even have a desk in your job. It was a very different time for J Crew, which is funny to even think about, right? Yeah, I mean,
1: it was. I mean, we no one had computers. Like we literally we had a communal computer that all of the designers loaded in, used it to get style numbers out because the computer could generate a style number, and we would use that to initiate the style. But none of us had computers. We all just had sketchbooks on our. I we didn't have any. I'd paint and sketches in on my desk. I didn't have anything over time and I'm obviously evolved, but. It was a very, very different time in the company. There was like 13 people working. Oh my gosh, in, I didn't know that with,
0: small when you started in, in the design team. So the, the, the design, design team was 13 yeah. people.
1: By the time I left the design team for J Crew, was I don't know 80 people. Wow. Incredible. Yeah.
0: So there's so much to talk about with your J. Crew experience. You were there for 27 years. You started with the company when it was a multi-million dollar company. Witnessed it to multi-billion. Saw it go public. Saw it go private. Had many ups and downs. And I know, you know, at some point, and this was before Mickey Drexler came into the picture. You've been very honest about. You were miserable. You were burned out. You weren't excited to say even worked at J. Crew at the time. So my question is, you know, what were you still doing, staying at the company then, and <laughs> what were you going through at that
1: time? I mean, I think. It's hard to explain to someone who wasn't on the inside. And The best I can say is like, what had happened was, I got to a point where it was absolutely painful. I mean, it was probably one of the hardest times in my life. I remember when I got married, it was literally just as a lot of the changeover was happening, I remember being on my honeymoon and just being like, having such a heavy heart. It was just so, it was so hard, I think we were being pushed to, to make clothes that I think I didn't believe in. I didn't know, they didn't hold the ethos of what I had joined the company and came to do. We had had a lot of different leadership that really was shifting the trajectory of where we were going. And I felt lost and sort of untethered to what we were producing. And at the same time, I was desperately trying to hold on to the team. And so I found myself as somebody would come to me and say, I think I have to go. I was like, please don't go, please stay. Let's try and figure this out. And then the question would always be, well, are you going to leave? if you're staying, I'll stay. And so then I had this weird conundrum where I had sort of promised people who were scared and wanting to leave that I would stay and try to hold it together. And so then I felt like I couldn't go. And I also didn't have a lot of options, you know, leaving a company that's really not doing well and doesn't look great. Where am I going to go? And so I had this really kind of, It's a dark time and it was, you know, there's nothing worse than standing at a party and someone asking where you, where you work and you just feeling ashamed. It was a really hard time. I wasn't proud of what I was doing. I wasn't proud of the work I was producing. And so going through such a dramatic change and watching it go from something like that, where I felt really proud to say where I worked and and also really proud to be a part of that change. It was amazing. It was like a miracle. (laughs) I can't believe it happened. And looking back on it, it's like, (laughs) thank God it was An absolutely incredible blessing, like amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible story. And I think at the time before Mickey came in and the company, you guys really revamped it. It was really the first time you were in a bot or a very more senior position, right? So people were looking into you. So that's a tough time. That's a lot to juggle. And- It is. And it's interesting because, you know, you clearly stayed the path. And I think it's a huge testament to how you are as a boss and leader with your team. You're very loyal. So then Mickey comes in right in 2002. And I would love to hear from your perspective. I think it was like a few days in, you just knew there was magic in the place. So what was it about Mickey? I mean, he's amazing also.
1: Mickey is one of those people who he's like an alchemist. And I think he's also, it's so hard to describe the way he works because it's unlike anyone I've ever worked with, but he has this incredible energy and this laser like attunement to what is going on and where things are going and what to really listen to you know he's you know he's not one of those people who wants it all he has a very he had a very clear idea and i think for me as a designer it was incredibly exciting because at the time my job was really only design and i was overseeing women's design and kids i didn't oversee men's at the time and i was strictly on that part of the fence and i All I wanted to do was make beautiful things. That's all I ever wanted to do. I had no interest in like making things I didn't feel proud of. I just wanted to make things that made me excited and made me, that looked pretty and that made people happy. I wasn't doing that. And as soon as he came in, he started to say, like, well, why does the quality of this cashmere feel like shit? Why are the colors so dingy? And I found myself explaining, well, we don't use the best quality tops. So tops are the raw material of cashmere before you actually spin them into yarn. And if you get the best quality tops, you can get them whiter. When you get them whiter, then you can actually make neon dyes or beautiful, vibrant colors, really clear heathers. But if your tops are not the best quality, they're inherently more gray and you just can never get those colors. Every color just looks dingy. That's what we're faced with because we tried to make things cheap. And deeper and deeper and cheaper. And the quality was not what was paramount to the previous administration. And so I think hearing that was just, you know, that meant that I could make beautiful colors. I could pick colors that I've been wanting to put on the color card, but I couldn't because I knew we would never be able to achieve them. I got to work with Laura Piana, one of the best cashmere mills in the planet. You know, he cared. Why does this flannel feel like shit? Why does it feel boardy? I'm like, well, it's a you know short staple yarn. We need to be using a longer staple yarn, and if we want to actually go, we can go to a different mill. How much more expensive is it? Well, if we buy a lot of what yardage, maybe we can get the price down. Let's do. It. You know, he just he was like, get everybody in, here. and he wanted to do it then, and he would just bring the entire team. He would get on the loudspeaker. He would call the head of you know head of fabric, head of production, and be like, how do we get this done? And I mean, I was just you know, it was the most exciting thing for me to. Come from a place where I was being asked to do like cotton rib sweaters in like butter yellow and going to like doing Italian cashmere in like neon pink Heather, you know, it was just, woo, <laughs> it was crazy.
0: And, you know, you mentioned you always saw yourself just heading design and creating beautiful pieces, but clearly your career at J. Crew really went from you were executive creative director and then Mickey promoted you to be president of J. Crew group, which is not just J. Crew. It was made well in J. Crew factory. So, I mean, that's quite a bit. My question for you is, I mean, did you always have the confidence to step into those
1: positions? I mean, how did you deal with that I mean, nothing from the outside is re- as what, is what, what's really happening on the inside. You know, I was incredibly hard. I mean, I think there were moments that I felt confidence for sure. And there were moments that i struggled. I think the thing that is so... The, it was never the work that was hard. I understood how to get the job done. I knew how to make the clothes. I understood how to think about the catalog. I understood how to think about the web. I I enjoyed that part that I had wonderful team members. The part that was hard that no one really teaches you and is so incredibly difficult to share, particularly with people who are younger, is that I didn't go to school of management, meaning, and I don't mean management, how to run a company. I mean, how to talk to people, how to motivate people, how to listen to them when they're struggling and give them advice of what to do next, how to deal with a team who is maybe demoralized because something went wrong or how to deal with the team when they're getting really overly excited and the other teams aren't doing like how to balance those things, how to manage through tough times, how to manage through really good times and not get too comfortable. Like those kinds of things I, I had to learn on the job and I made numerous mistakes and it's probably one of the hardest things to learn how to motivate and cultivate and curate and nurture a team. It's the it's the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure even like a team in a bigger scale. Right now, you're and we'll get into this in a bit. You're launching, you know, multiple businesses, and you don't have a team of a hundred, hundreds of people. So it's a whole nother management style. Oh, I'm God. sure and, whole other nightmare. <laughs> yeah, which which we'll get definitely get into. But you know, when you were going up the ranks, I mean, did you have any? mentorship? Was it Mickey or anybody that you leaned on that kind of helped you triumph those difficult moments or did you just push through?
1: The benefit that I had that was incredible. I mean, first of all, Mickey, I was absolutely an incredible mentor. I think what was amazing to me was seeing how much he brought everyone into the conversation. He, I hadn't really had the same experience of like, he wanted to know everyone's opinion and he wasn't afraid. He would still make his own decision, but he wanted to hear from people and bringing people. I had never come from that Being into design, it's sometimes hard because it's so personal and you feel like if someone's gonna critique it or tell you their perception or their opinion, that maybe they don't like what you did. And that is a very hard place to sit. And I Mickey wanted to hear from everyone. He would, you know, even if we were opening a store in like Mall of America, he would say, anybody, you know, get on the loudspeaker, anyone who lives near Mall of America, come up to my office. And he would want to hear from them, like. Would your mom shop there? Do your parents shop there? What would you get there? Do you get a gift there? How much, what's the pricing? What are the other stores like? Would you go and hang out there? Because he wanted to know if the decision he was about to make was a good one. And that idea of soliciting, not just from the team that was in the building, but also from customers. Like if customers called with a complaint, he would get them on the phone. Tell me what happened. What's wrong? How can we fix it? You know, he just wanted, and that kind of attention to detail with customer service, like I understood attention to detail in like buttons and linings and trim and fitting and all of that, but seeing his attention to detail to the entire ecosystem of the brand and the consumer was really, was incredible and very inspiring to me. I think it's informed my life in a very big way sort of a holistic way in terms of the on the job stuff. And just, you know, having a mentor, the best possible thing I had, which I'm so grateful for is like every one of my senior team members I had worked with for, there was not a single person who was at a senior level I'd worked with for less than 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like the head of styling I'd worked with her for 20 years, Head of men's 15, the head of women's 12. I mean, it was just, so that kind of camaraderie and also understanding An ability to actually have real conversations where someone can come in and say, this isn't working, I need help, or I'm upset about blah, 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 or you made me mad and like, great, let's talk about it. You know, that kind of support and understanding is just irreplaceable and, and just invaluable.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely. And I know in this new role that you were in, it was really the first time you were in the public eye. And I know New York Times called you the woman who dressed America, which is a pretty big tagline because you, you know, Michelle <laughs> Obama wore a lot of the clothes from J. Crew. But, you know, yeah. you're a very private person, naturally, at least prior to this. How was the transition to go into the public eye? Because so much of your personal and professional life was just full force at this time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it happened more slowly than I think... You would imagine. I think it was happening kind of gradually, and I think the very first thing I ever did was Domino magazine, which was ironic because it actually was more about my apartment or house—it was a house at the time—than fashion. And so that was really interesting. And then the next thing was Vogue with Annie Leibovitz, which was so bizarre. (laughs) But still, people didn't know who I was. It wasn't really until a couple of years later when you know I started to get recognized, or I would be in line at a store, and people would be like, "Oh my god!" And you know, there was a little bit of that happening, and. And that started to build. So it was quite slow. But the thing that was amazing was everyone was incredibly nice. Like they were just like, can I take a picture with you? You know, it was so nice. I think the hardest part wasn't the external because for the other than when I got divorced, which was a total shit show, that was really hard. But the external part was actually relatively easy. The part that was hard was the internal because here I'm having this sort of more, I'm sitting at a table, you know, next to Solange or your fiance at a wedding. And then next morning I'm laying on the floor editing in clothes and, it felt very divided and it was hard to like make sure that I was constantly just being present and also not being, it was different. My life was changing. And that was a really hard thing to navigate for me, trying to stay grounded and earthbound when I was on cloud nine from some crazy experience the night before, you know, and then going into the office and having to like talk about the Jackie Cardigan, you know, it's just a very weird, very weird experience.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I know you talked about another interview, but it was like one night you'd be at the White House and at some gala, and then you were like back at work the next morning talking about like these cardigans. I mean, do you think it had you slowly lose interest within working at J. Crew and kind of motivated you to leave, or how did you deal with such two different worlds at the time?
1: No, I mean, I think you know at the time. I mean, that was pretty early on in the in the process. I didn't start to feel like I needed to leave until like probably the last two years. There was a host of reasons that that was happening. You know, I think that. That was, I was. The thing that was nice was that I felt like that everything was feeding back into itself, meaning I was excited about the product. It was so nice to hear people like the product outside in the world and then to bring that back in and say, oh, I met so and so and they were really loving the clothes. Like it felt good for everyone, you know, everyone who worked on that thing, whether it was designer, the merchant, the person who shot it, like that was a nice sort of reaffirmation of what we were doing and we were doing it together. And so I think it was nice. I didn't lose interest. I was very engaged and really in love and like just enjoying myself and had the best fucking ride. And it was really, you know, time. It's so funny when I hear young people say to me, oh, I've been working in this job for two years. It's time for me to go. I'm yeah, like, oh. <laughs> like I the, feel
0: old in those situations. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're just <laughs> learning two years in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Well, talking about J. Crew, fast-forwarding a little bit because there's so much to talk about, you know, you ended up leaving after 27 years and you've been very open again and transparent about how that moment in your life was very tough and you were maybe a bit depressed with the transition because you didn't realize how much of your identity was tied to this being in this brand which I feel like a lot of women listening who might be right now, who might be in a transition could resonate with your experience. But can you take us back to that moment and really share, you know, how did you sit with those feelings and push through such a tough transition in your life? I mean,
1: I think looking back on it, not very well. (laughs) You know, I think I started working pretty much right out of college. I mean, I took three months to go and waitress, but I was working the entire summer. And then I pushed through and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and had a child along the way. I got divorced along the way, kept taking more work on. And I don't think I realized how tired I was. I had a schedule that looked, every day my schedule was just blocked to the gills and I had no time for, you know, I ate through lunch I worked through lunch. I had a bathroom installed right adjacent to my office. So I didn't have to run all the way to the one down the hall. It was just full on. And it didn't stop when the day was done. You know, Mickey didn't stop. I still had to go back there and check emails and like check in with my sister. Like it was just, it was nonstop. And so I think aside from just feeling a little untethered and lost, I also, I was just exhausted and didn't really know what to do with myself. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I, I don't think I did a great job of sitting with it. I, I mean, I did sit with it. I literally... The one thing I will give myself, I was not so pleased with myself at the time, but in retrospect, I'm happy that I allowed it to happen is like, I allowed myself to be bored and I allowed myself not to like fill my schedule with ceramics classes and you know cooking classes and French classes and whatever. I really was just quiet. And that also allowed me to take calls and do things and be interested in things I probably would never have done. I mean, I never would have done a TV show. I probably never would have started a lash line. If I had been filling all my time and also sort of putting my sights on getting the next job, you know, I really just kind of pieced out and said, I need to stop. I'm so happy that I was able to do that. I feel grateful and I needed it so badly. And I didn't know how badly until until I sat down and was like, oh holy shit.
0: Yeah. And you talk about how it's now a blessing that, you know, you weren't getting calls. I guess you had expectations that people would call you, you were this icon, other brands would want you involved, but it was a blessing that it didn't happen because like you said, it was the first time in your life you got to sit with yourself and think about, you know, what do you want to do? And do you think it was just a matter of time where you were more open to taking those meetings? Like what was the transition? Was it a few months where you realized, okay, it's time for me to explore? Like, what was it that you became more flexible in that?
1: I mean, it was literally, I took probably nine months for me to actually look at my phone to do anything other than check the time. I mean, I I'm, I really put down pretty severely. And it was interesting too, because, you know, all of the invitations stopped coming. I That was a healthy thing to live through because you really, it's helped me now because as I'm starting to come back into the world more, it makes me very much more clear about what I want to do and what I don't want to do and what really matters and what's really just me going to something or an event for for what am I doing? Like, who cares? Do I care? What is the meaning behind it? Why am I going? What am I after? And What am I, what's my motivation really? And what's the person's motivation for inviting me? Like, what's the reason for me going? And so it has helped me gain perspective. I have no idea what your original question was.
0: No, just, I mean, in terms, no, this is a great conversation, just know, in terms of like how you shifted into that perspective, oh, right. like accepting <laughs> calls, because you. that's when all the opportunities came about, like you said, right? The documentary.
1: Yeah. Like I said, I don't think I would have been open to anything. I don't think I would have been open to any of the calls. I remember my friend Jay called and said, you know, Hey, would you want to grab lunch? And we grabbed lunch and we had no agenda. And then I was in LA and we had breakfast again, no agenda. It was purely just, do you want to check in and say, hi. And his friend, Matt Hanna walked over and said, like, aren't you Jenna Alliance? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, do you want to do TV? And I was like, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> and he ended up calling Jay and getting my number and was like, do you mind if we talk? And we just kind of, he was insistent and said, like, can we please talk? I was like, all right, fine. And we had a couple of conversations. We then had a couple of other conversations with networks. And before I knew it, after like two meetings, we had a deal to do a television show with HBO Max. And I was like, great. So it's sort of a hybrid of a documentary reality show. It's It was something that I hadn't really done before, which was hard. <laughs> you know, I think trying to do something that's sort of uncharted territory, particularly in, in a medium that I don't know, was definitely a challenge. But I'm super proud of how it came out. It was fun to do. And I felt good about the biggest challenge was really being myself and not being catty and mean, which I think would have been better for the television show from a a ratings and a, and a sort of scintillating part, but that wasn't really what I was after. So I'm happy that you liked it.
0: <laughs> You're, you were very true to yourself. And I think a lot of people think fashion is always your mean bosses and like it has a different perception. And, yeah. you know, honestly, I like I said, I followed you and I really fell in love with you more in that show because you were just so real and vulnerable and like the advice you would give people there and how you were starting your business behind the scenes. I mean, it was a really, a, a really great documentary. You did such a great job. Thank and you. I know it wasn't easy during COVID,
1: right? Because like the oh, last episode. Well, how oh, did God. That well, I don't I don't want you, you keep saying documentary and I have to say it, I think it's much more like a reality yeah, a reality show,
0: show <laughs> but it was still real it didn't seem phony you know because I can't I check I, out when it's like no, major so reality funny.
1: no I appreciate it it's just like well, we were trying to do as a reality show that was actually reality yeah like real there was nothing <laughs> nothing was scripted they didn't force the narrative there was no maneuvering from the producers behind the scenes to shift the narrative in any way or to sort of take advantage of a creepy moment or a bad moment that did not happen which was why, which I think is what I thought reality TV was like that until I learned later. So it is, this is actually like, that's why it was, we called it a documentary, a shift, a, a, a hybrid of a documentary reality show, which hopefully it ended up that way. It was fun to do. I, it was exhausting. I don't know if you've ever had somebody following you around with cameras, but the number of times I went to the bathroom with my microphone on, I mean, I can't. I, like, <laughs> I couldn't even is,
0: imagine. Yeah. No, it's
1: like really <laughs> some interesting moments.
0: No, I'm sure. And I know behind the scenes, you were also working on Love Scene, which I'd love to get into in a little bit, but also the timelines I know were a little bit off. Like the reality show was supposed to come out, I think earlier in the year and then Love Scene shortly after, but that got all mixed up, right? With COVID and I'm sure many other
1: things. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, like everyone else was affected, obviously. I think it was MC worldwide and I think life is what happens when you're making plans. We were supposed to launch the show in May. We were supposed to launch Love Scene in July. Neither of those things happened and ironically the, the last round ended up launching prior to the television show because the network was also going through a lot of changes so h we were originally with turner then we got shifted and moved over to hbo max and so there was some re-editing that was done because when you're on tnt they parse out the episodes you see them weekly meaning they don't all come out at one time but with hbo max they come all come out at one time so we had originally edited where you have to say the whole thing like here's what happened last week and so there was that was originally cut into the show and now they took all of that out so we we had to go back and re-edit some things. And also HBO just has a slightly different feel. And so all of that was happening. We were doing all the motion graphics and the look and feel and the music all at the same time. We were getting ready to launch Love Scene and... We had to put Love Scene on hold for three full months, which, you know, financially was not fun. We were paying people's salaries and we missed our deadline by like months. It was not great. And, you know, we had all these people just, you couldn't do anything because we could, we had everything ready to go. We had the website built, we had all the products ready, the packaging, everything was done. But we couldn't take any pictures because we couldn't put the lashes on a model and get close to them so we could photo shoot. So we had to wait and it was definitely not ideal, but what we got, but it happened and it's doing incredibly well. And it's super exciting.
0: Yeah. And you know, I want to go back a little bit. You talked about the genesis of how your show came about, but I'd love to hear about Love Scene and how you knew that that was a business opportunity you wanted to go all into.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I've always loved the beauty industry. I think the one thing that I really appreciate so much about the beauty world is like, unlike clothing, I don't have to worry about whether you're a size two or a size 16. I don't have to worry about whether you are having a fat day or a skinny day, whether you like your hair, or you don't like your hair, whether you have big boobs, you don't have big boobs, none of that matters. So what All that matters is that you can utilize a product and beauty and make yourself feel beautiful and you can apply whatever makeup. No one knows whether you're wearing, it's not a Louis Vuitton handbag hanging over, no one knows where your lashes came through. So there's, not, there's no status around it. It's more just about how do you feel and does it work for you? Does it make you feel beautiful? And that was a huge relief coming from a completely different avenue and industry where I had a lot of different restraints. And so that was just incredibly fun. And so I've always been fascinated. And the one thing that I noticed is when I was getting ready to leave J. Crew, all the women in my office were getting eyelash extensions. Like I knew when someone was had a new boyfriend or they were getting married or they had some like event. And, Cause like all of a sudden it was like curtains up on the lashes. I was like, well, hello. And you know, that was pretty funny because most of the women at J. Crew didn't wear makeup. It was pretty pared down. And so then I left J Crew shortly after, and I got obsessed with, have you ever watched Huda Beauty? I,
0: I have that some videos? of her stuff. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well,
1: so at the very beginning, so this was probably, I don't know, five years ago when I first became acquainted with her. She was four, four years ago now. Yeah, She was doing all these videos and she like literally these girls would put on, she would put on and these other girls would put on like, I'm not joking, like 17 layers of face products between contour and highlighter and powder and then under eye concealer and then they go back and powder over again and then the highlighter would come back. And I was like, what the hell is happening here? And at the very end, they were put on a lash. yeah And I thought it was so interesting that these two polar opposites of people, they were both looking at the eyelashes and wanting eyelashes to be the focus, but they were so polar they were just such polar opposites in terms of the expression and there wasn't a lot in between and I love eyelashes I'm fascinated by them and they they do really give you a lot of pop but I wanted something that was a little bit more delicate and Troy and I had done my makeup for you know he'd done my makeup for red carpet prior and I think I told this story once but I was on Oprah Winfrey's show which is so fun and she came backstage to say hello yeah amazing (laughs) both Troy and I were like trembling and when she walked out he turned around and he goes, girl, get into that chair. He's like, I'm giving you extensions and eyelashes. You're going to look like a wet rat. <laughs> He's like, because she just, you know, she was like full on. She had, you know, hair and makeup and everything. She looked beautiful and was like, so there was just a lot. And I look literally was like, mm. we, I remember him like cutting them apart because we couldn't put them on. They were just, they were all so big. And I also think they weren't aren't necessarily shown with makeup looks that are like makeup looks that I could do. And I'm like, I still love them. And I think a lot of people like eyelashes, but don't necessarily want to have like, Anyway, so I started talking about it. I started talking about it to everyone I knew. And then I happened to meet these partners, these guys who introduced me for the show, which for, you know, because we were going to do a business plan for the show, Brett, Jeff and Betsy from Magnet. And before I knew it, we were putting a business plan together and it just kind of happened. It was the most incredible, like synergistic, unblocked process, which made me feel like, God, this is meant to be.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have goosebumps hearing that because I think it's really when you tapped into like what you genuinely liked and you start speaking to about it to other people and like the world just kind of collided and serendipitously you met with them and yeah. they happened to be your business partners or investors in love scene and it just all kind of happened and I'm definitely a big fan. I every time I get my makeup done I always feel like I look completely different. I'm like, can we just tone down the eyelashes a little bit? Like I don't look like myself. So big fan of your yeah. work and yeah, what you're thank you. about
1: but I know I remember the very first time I went I went I was in a wedding. So not my own wedding but I was in someone else's wedding and they put eyelashes on us. And I first of all they were so heavy. Yeah. Look, <laughs> like, by the end of the night, I was like, Ooh, I gotta take these off. And also I just, I felt like I didn't look like myself. I feel like for, especially for a bride, like who wants to marry someone that all of a sudden looks like a different person? Like it's just, no, thanks.
0: Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I totally, totally agree with that. So, you know, you mentioned you never thought you'd be building a business and becoming an entrepreneur. So, this is a very broad question, but like, how has experience been for you? Has it been tough, challenging, rewarding,
1: all of the above? I would say all of the above. <laughs> it's very humbling. I mean, I particularly, you know, you have to imagine like my career. I started off in a day where like computers and Instagram and Snapchat and marketing didn't look the way they do today. And I grew up then really looking at those things from a very high level. So really we were moving big parts. I was doing big thinking around how to move the needle and which ways we can push and pull the company managing a ton of people. I hadn't actually been doing the day-to-day work. And so I don't, you know, one of the reasons that I I feel like I was successful at J Cruz over the time that I was there. I worked in so many different departments. I worked in men's. I worked in women's accessories, swim, wedding. I'd done so many different parts of the business that I felt really comfortable in any conversation. Now, that's not the case. You know, I am coming at it. And there are things that, you know, some people are talking about sometimes. I'm like, I don't actually know what you're talking about. (laughs) You know, I haven't had that sort of level of depth in things. And because we're such a small organization, there's no choice but to be deep. And so it's been really humbling. Um, but I also feel really, like, grateful because I have, again, like, a really strong team. And I was like, okay, well, you don't need me for that. You guys can handle that. And finding my pacing and my way of being involved, but also being supportive, but also giving them room, it's been really, it's been challenging. But I feel, like, incredibly grateful for the team that I work with and just how, you know, they're so damn smart. All of them are smarter than I am, which is which really works for me. I really like (laughs) everybody around me smarter than me. It's just great.
0: Yeah. And you know, I love that you mentioned right now that, you know, sometimes you'll be in conversations where you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about, because it reminds me in another interview you did where you said in the early days of J. Crew, like sometimes you'd be in meetings and you were embarrassed to say like, I don't know what you're talking about. You mentioned you've just become more humble and you just own it. Like I don't know what's going on right now. And I think that's okay, right?
1: Listen, if it was every day, all the time, and for everything, I think that could be scary. But I think being able to say to someone and having the confidence to say, I am actually, I know a lot about a lot of things. I don't know a lot of depth on some things because I haven't actually had that experience. And so, A, I think, first of all, I have never met someone who does not like to impart information that they know. I would say most people, when they can share and teach or educate are really game. And particularly when there's someone more senior, who's like humble enough to say, I'm actually not sure what you're talking about. Can you explain that to me? And I also want to learn, like, it's exciting to learn something and I'm going to get more out of it. If I actually say, I'm not really sure. I understand. Can you give me a little bit more depth on that. Like I remember when I first started working on the website and Joanna Langford who oversaw the website like would spend a really, like she was great at explaining to me exactly what was happening and why it was a challenge which made me more educated and able to then support her in meetings where she was trying to push for something because I'd taken the time for her to like really download me and understand the technology because it wasn't my job. Then when I was having a conversation with somebody and we're trying to actually support it, I actually had language and understanding that was power. You know, that was there's nothing worse than pretending that you know and you don't know because it will come out later <laughs> in probably not the best way.
0: Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with being curious and learning, especially as a leader. Like I think that's just part yeah. of your day-to-day job is always Absolutely. learning all the time. Absolutely. So we love to ask this question to a lot of our guests, but what are you most proud of that a lot of people may not know about you, Jenna? I don't know. I'm a really good driver. That's impressive, especially being in New York for so long, right? That's a big deal. I grew up in California
1: though, so I grew up driving. I've always, every time I take somebody for a drive, there, I was like, "You're a really good driver." So, yeah, I'm not park. a good parallel parker. Oh, I was about really to say, good. "Can you parallel park?" <laughs> I used to be able to. I have this funny story. I my when I was with my ex husband, we had a, he he had an El Camino, which is a, a 1970 El Camino, old, big, gigantic thing. And this thing, like when you drove it down the street, it was like. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I remember I was all dressed up. I had to go someplace, and this was before Uber. And so we lived on the way, way west side. So I would drive to places. And so I was all dressed up and I drove the, this El Camino and I, this was back when I was amazing parallel parker and that fucker was big. <laughs> yes. And I remember pulling up in, in front of a bar doing like the, I pulled forward, I pulled back in and pulled forward with like, it was a two, it was, I, I was in, like, it was perfection. Wow. And I, I knew it. And I was like, yes, got out of the car and walked around to go, to go to wherever I was going. And this guy comes out of the bar and he gets down his knee and he goes, Will you marry me? It was the funniest. That's thing. a great story. I mean, you're it was de- the best. Yeah.
0: Your attention to detail is pretty on point. So I'm I was not surprised was, was, by <laughs> that.
1: I've lost it. I've lost it. I can't <laughs> I, now I can't do it. I literally I would be like a 70-point turn if I did if I did it now, but that's okay.
0: That's too funny. And you know, another question that we love to close on with a lot of our guests is wealth means so much more than money, and everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this stage in your life, what does wealth mean to you?
1: Oh my God. I mean, it's so true. And I think I have I learned so much. I think I always was seeking a level of success that I didn't understand. Like success is so much different than what I thought it was. And I think now success is like, it's free time, time to like actually cook, time to be with friends and family, like not feeling pressure to move on to the next thing, but actually being able to be in the moment. And I know that sounds really cheesy, but I am so true. absolutely insanely grateful that I've have had that because I don't I never I never did that I always was trying to get to the next thing and I it was a mistake
0: oh Jenna well I appreciate you joining us I could talk to you for so long but this was awesome thank you for joining
1: us thank you thank you and you did fantastic research I'm really impressed and thank you so much for having me